Welcome to the Lonely Pastors Podcast with Brother Michael Battenfield and Brother Derek Bremer. Just two small church pastors seeking to glorify God, to grow in grace, and to flesh out doctrine, theology, and issues facing the church today. Thank you for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Lonely Pastors Podcast. Featuring Michael Battenfield of First Baptist Church, Cape Springs, Arkansas, and Derek Bremer, Denver Street Missionary Baptist Church in Greenwood, Arkansas. The purpose of this podcast, ultimately, is to exist as a platform for a discussion, discourse, on doctrinal topics and theological topics in our present-day culture. The objectives of this episode is to introduce the speakers, their perspectives, biases, and purpose in participating in a podcast like this. Also, to provide a framework and foundation for a formal discourse on theological topics, identify the relevance of culture within theological discussions, and identify the relevance of theological conversations among not just the elite Christians, but all Christians. (laughs) Let's go ahead and get started, and let's meet the host of our podcast, Brother Michael Battenfield. Yes, I'm Michael Battenfield. I would call myself uh, an admitted theology nerd, but I, unfortunately, I think Derek might co-opt that same same uh, title. But I've been involved in one way or another in various polemic activities, and, and who loves listening to a podcast from those who take time to flesh out and discuss their viewpoints from an intellectually honest perspective? That means we can disagree without going to war. My call to ministry came about four years ago, four years after I came to faith in Christ. I'll save that story for maybe another time and another episode or setting. But the call to ministry began months before I actually acknowledged it. That call came while I was a member of Pleasant Grove Missionary Baptist Church in Carlisle, Arkansas, actually a small unincorporated community south of another little town uh, of of Culler, uh, Arkansas. My pastor at the time had already pushed me into several teaching positions as he apparently sensed the call before I came to grips with it. As I was serving there in Carlisle as an assistant pastor and still teaching band uh, at Carlisle High School, I began my seminary studies at the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. My first pastorate was in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, That church was Parkview Baptist, where I served for five years before being called to Clinton, Arkansas. What a blessed time, but the the most uh, thinking uh, and faith-building area of my ministry was in that time in Clinton. Finally, I was called to First Baptist Church in Cave Springs, Arkansas, where I've been serving a little over five and a half years. You know, I'm unashamed of enjoying discussion and debate of theology and doctrine, and I really do have a passion for expositional preaching. I have most recently been burdened and convicted in regards to prayer. What exactly does James 5:16 look like in the life of a believer right here at the end of 2022? Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And just how does that fit in my own view of the sovereignty and the immutability of our unchanging God? This has been a life-changing event for me. Again, maybe details for a future episode. In addition to all this direct ministry-related information, I've been married to my wife, Diana, for nearly 30 years, and what a blessing she has been in my life. And I have two daughters that both, though almost complete opposites in nearly every way, bring great joy to me. I also enjoy hunting, fishing, shooting, outdoor sports, uh, and of course, reading. But that brings us to the other host of this show, Brother Derek Bremer. 
I would have to agree. Michael is definitely a theology nerd, and I love him for it. And I, I just pray that someday I'll be able to steal the title. I, I have a high view of education. I love to learn, but ultimately, I, I'm not an academic. I'm a small church pastor from Greenwood, Arkansas, who has the privilege of ministering to the faithful people of Denver Street Baptist Church, and I praise God for that opportunity every chance I get. Mm. I'm younger than Michael, and uh, I've only been in ministry five years now, so I'm, I'm a shortcomer. I surrendered to ministry at Temple Baptist Church in Rogers, Arkansas, under the conviction of my need to be sharing the gospel with the world. And that wasn't something that was just a command for all Christians, but it came about when I learned that my wife, the person who I had planned to spend the rest of my life with, was not saved, that she didn't know Christ as her Savior. And in fact, while I meant to spend the rest of my life with her, I wouldn't be spending the rest of eternity with her. Hmm. Through the grace of God, I watched my wife become saved. I watched her continue to grow in Christ, and by leaps and bounds in her understanding of what the Bible taught about humanity, about human nature, about who Christ was, the Trinity, what salvation is, how it comes about, and and many other things. And I've been encouraged by that, and that has burdened me to be a help rather than a hindrance to the rest of the world as I thought about it and reflected upon my wife's own growth. The thing that really broke my heart led me to realize there was nothing else in this world that would ever satisfy me. And so that's how I find myself where I'm at now. I'm currently a student at BMA Theological Seminary, and my current passion or particular interest would lean towards understanding what the Bible has to say about who humans are. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in my personal studies on that topic, and I'm very interested in understanding the image of God that is inside of all humanity, making them uh, worthy of dignity, each person of equal level, and just how amazing it is that that God is able to create us in that way, and how we could glorify Him by being a reflection of that. Um, Unlike Michael, I'm not much of a, I don't have many hobbies. I'm not a sportsman. I like to fish, but I can't say I'm enthusiastically passionate about it. And I like the Bible. Uh, There is nothing else in this world that has gripped me or or taken hold of me. You know, when I think of a passion, I think it has to be something that you can wake up in the middle of the night about and get excited and go run down. (laughs) Uh, I've never gotten up in the middle of the night to go fishing. I've never gotten up in the middle of the night to go arrowhead hunting. I've never gotten up in the middle of the night to uh, do a whole lot of things. I have gotten up in the middle of the night to go look up a Greek word, to go <laughs> check out a passage of Scripture. And uh, so I, I would say that that I wish I had more interest, and maybe that's what makes me a lonely pastor. <laughs> and uh, But we're looking forward to having you as a part of this discussion and perhaps even bringing me into some other interest. So, Derek, why don't we just discuss a little bit about how we met? Um, I don't know what, what you remember of how we met. I actually do remember the exact moment. I don't know if you do remember it or not, but I remember the place. I can't give you the exact date on the calendar, uh, but it, I think it was in an event at Temple Baptist, probably an associational meeting, uh, but I'm not sure about that. But I do remember Wade Allen introducing me to this young buck that came in the door. Uh, that was my first recollection of, of our meeting. Uh, is that what you remember, or do you have some other meeting remembers no, that I, I don't? I think I remember the same meeting. I remember the shirt that I was wearing. Um, 
because it was a Doctor Who shirt. And say what you will about the most recent episodes of Doctor Who, but at one time it used to be good. And uh, mm-hmm. so I was wearing a Doctor Who shirt, and Michael recognized it. My pastor at the time, a little less culturally aware, didn't appreciate the brilliance between <laughs> the original Doctor Who sci-fi show. And uh, so I remember I was wearing that shirt. I don't think it was an associational meeting. You okay. had just become pastor of First Baptist Cave Springs. Yeah. And a Sunday evening service was dismissed over here. And Wade's parents, John and Linda mm. Allen, um, had invited you to the evening service at That's Temple. That's right. See, I only go to Temple for important stuff, so. <laughs> <laughs> to make your church members happy, right? Uh, uh, there's a lot to be said for that as long as you're not compromising, right? Um, but it's kind of interesting. Derek and I didn't really see bump into each other a whole lot except at associationally related things. Uh, and then I guess it was when you became intern or whatever your position was at Temple Somehow, we just wind up, I don't even remember how that first conversation went, but let's meet at the coffee shop in Cave Springs. And, well, the rest is kind of history from what I, I think of, because we began discussing things, and it became a very frank, open conversation. And I'm sure there were people in the coffee shop that learned things about the Bible and our, our own personal doctrinal theological <laughs> positions that they didn't ask for. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but that became regular. I, I actually missed those since you've moved uh, down to Greenwood. But that being said... No, it, it was intentional on my part. I to move to Greenwood and away from our coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, to to show up at the coffee shop. I'd been seeing for some time the the Bible study that you'd been hosting in the community. Thought it was awesome. Wanted to be a part of it, but I wasn't able to because I worked a full time job. And then as I uh, surrendered to ministry, began serving as uh, the youth pastor. And before that, I was the intern of whatever church's titles. It's weird, but. Um, leading up to being the youth pastor at Temple, I had that time and decided uh, I wanted to go and take advantage of, of the time that I had available to learn from somebody and to speak with somebody who wasn't a member of my church that I was serving in because I think that's something important for pastors to have. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, we wind up in almost a mini echo chamber that we can't really grow in sometimes, and that seems opposite of what the purpose of the church is, but really, that's what it becomes because you're in that same context all the time, and we need, there's nothing wrong with listening to other voices as long as you know how to pick the bones, so to speak. Uh, you know, one thing that I think has drawn Derek and I together, and I really, if you look at us personality-wise, we are very different, and yet we both share a passion for the Word of God, but the word that really comes to my mind is truth. You know, without truth, the scriptures talk use the word truth for what? The Lord himself. He is truth. And it's the truth that sets us free. And we have a desire for truth. In fact, I remember my first sermon I ever preached when I surrendered the ministry. Uh, and looking back, it was not a good sermon. That, how many of us do preach a really great sermon the first time around? But at least it wasn't wrong. Uh, but it was lacking in biblical depth and meat that delivers the need that we really would need today. But my biggest fear wasn't what I preached so much as that I would possibly say something that wasn't the truth. And that's something that has stayed with me even to this day. When I step in the pulpit, I take that, that, that obligation to preach the truth so seriously that if there's one area of anxiety, and I hate to use that term as a as a pastor because we're supposed to be anxious for nothing, right? And yet that is my number one concern, is I want what comes out of my mouth to be firmly rooted 
in the truth of God's word um, and not mishandle the word. In fact, we live in a culture, and this gets back to one of the actual purposes of this podcast that we're going to get to in just a second. But we have so many, quote, churches in our culture today that truth isn't important. Feelings are important. And you know what? God's word doesn't care about my feelings. And that's one of the things that I hope that we can actually discuss in part of our contextualization of the topics we're going to address uh, in future episodes. And we share a passion, obviously, for right theology and doctrine. Again, the symptoms of American Christianity today, I'm not going to reiterate what others have said on the matter. We've got problems. In fact, even before we began recording this, uh, this episode, we had a little bit of a discussion about some of that that we've seen unfolding. Uh, and imagine how prideful it would be if either of us claimed to be absolutely right and you can't argue with us. There's people that do it. I like being challenged. Yeah. Uh, that, that causes us to jump right back into what you said, God's Word. And yes, I have woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning before and opened up my Bible or my Bible app to look something up because I just suddenly, this overwhelming thought, uh, and I think that's important. But that brings up something we're going get, to get to in a moment. Uh, what is the foundation or hope or vision for this podcast? Why another podcast? It seems like everybody's putting out podcasts now. You can find one to justify, to back up, to argue for or against everything in the whole wide world. And you and I both share some common interests in some of the podcasts we listen to. Why another podcast? In my mind, it's not really to replace anything that's out there. It's not anything to argue or, or just to put you know our stick in the mud. In my mind, the reason for this podcast, it, it's pretty simple. We want to engage with the world that's around us in a way that is meaningful from a biblical perspective. And the way that you do that is by recognizing that, well, there needs to be room to be wrong, which means you have to give people grace when they're wrong and correct them gently. And then also... Uh, to live in a world that is, well, constantly changing, constantly moving away from a biblical worldview, well, how do you engage with that world? Do you just separate yourself from it? And my personal conviction, that's not the right approach. We have to engage with the world around us without compromising what the Bible is clear on. And in so doing, that forces us, if we do it the right way, if we draw near other people, if we draw near more voices and more conversations, if we do it the right way, that forces us to grow closer to God. Well, and you just used a word, conversation. You know, you can take online courses, you can watch YouTube videos. There's every ministry in the world that has these videos and podcasts that will, just like sitting in a seminary class. That's not my desire for that. In fact, I remember when I first uh, kind of broached the subject of a, a podcast, you actually said to me, I've been meaning to suggest that you do that. And I think you probably had the same view I did in that I think about our discussions together. I think, you know, this very format of just frank conversation about these things, fleshing them out in real time can be helpful. Number one, how many times have I been sitting and talking to you and, and you've, told, you've given me a perspective and I've gone, wait. And it's caused me to really reflect, not that I agree or disagree so much as it's just made me think about it and vice versa, I hope. And that's exactly what we hope any possible perspective listener to this podcast might come away with is if nothing else, they've been challenged to dig in and really explore what the truth is. 
Um, and obviously, we don't want it to be a, a eye-glazing, boring lecture. That's the exactly opposite. Again, that's another thing we've discussed recently is we, we don't want it to be that. We want it to be direct and personal in a way that we can really understand. And yes, there's probably going to be times that we get in over our head in our vocabulary, uh, start referencing things and have to go, whoop, wait, let's back up a minute. But again, the idea is we want to run with the, the issues and the debates that are oftentimes right in the forefront of Christianity. Uh, we may at times take an ax to certain things that we see going on in American Christianity. At other times, we may take a controversial look at some things and go, you know what, maybe there's some value here. But the point is, I want this to be honest. I want it to be a really a view into our own hearts on the matter. You, you mentioned um, being anxious whenever you first started preaching. Uh-oh. And He's going to preach to me. <laughs> no, I think you're right. While we're not supposed to be anxious for anything, we are absolutely supposed to fear the Lord. And I experienced that. And I've even been told by some that they could tell I was holding back. And I went, well, yeah, there's a reason I was holding back. I didn't have time this week to dive into all of my notes. And so the things that I could was not confident were the absolute truth. I did not preach those. And even when I first started surrendering into ministry and started engaging in some of these conversations that they're a little bit deeper, they're a little bit heavier, and I started asking myself, hey, are they actually meaningful or is this a waste of time? I think one of the things that we learn is just because the water's muddy doesn't mean it's all that deep. Um, <laughs> as I started engaging in that, I realized the hesitance that I had just to introduce my own voice into the conversation, not from a place of fear, but from a place of misunderstanding or not even understanding what I actually believed. If we're really going to encourage other Christians to grow in their faith, if we're going to grow in our faith, well, we have to be able to actually put into words what it is that we believe. And Along open. that line, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I am. Yeah. My Bible tells me I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and give an account. And if I haven't pursued truth in my own life, sincere spiritual growth in my life, and pursued helping others to achieve that as well, I'm going to give an account for that. The Lord's going to put it and go, why didn't you? That's very convicting to me. And, and it's a two-way street. Absolutely. The words that we say carelessly and also the words that we don't say when we should have said them. We see both of that in our world today. And that gets us to the next thing we wanted to kind of bring up as part of our setting the foundation for this, is what is our foundation? You know, as an adherent of the five solas of the Reformation, one of them that just can't, you can't get away from is sola scriptura. What is the sole foundation of anything we believe, base our worship on, base our ministry on, if not the Word of God, right? And that has to be, you know, again, one of the things we wanted to do in this uh, preliminary episode was to lay foundation of where we're coming from. And so that's going to give us basis or maybe bias. Uh, Might even be an accurate word. Some might even call us uh, using some kind of presupposition. That's fine with me. Not necessarily to be a presuppositionalist, but to just, our presupposition is this. We're going to do all that we can to measure what we say and do to the Word of God. So, why should, why should we seek to understand ourselves before seeking the Spirit's illumination of Scripture? Well, I think it's like this. Uh, we can say that, and, and indeed we do say, that the Bible is the only uh, regulative rule of faith in life 
And I believe that with full conviction. I would be deceiving myself to say that I do not have influences that are beyond the Bible in my life. <laughs> I live in a world that does not reflect biblical living. I, I go work with people who do not reflect biblical living. I'm influenced by these things. Confession time. Not calling you to confess, but myself. How many times, even recently, have I stopped and gone, I have believed this my whole Christian life, only to find out that I didn't get that from the Bible. It came from what I might call tradition, because I've heard preachers say it, I've heard teachers say it. But then you go look it up in the Bible, and you're like, uh, that's not even what it really says. And it may not even be false theology, but it didn't come from that. Yeah, right. You're uh, the the three wise men from the land of the Orient that were there at Jesus's birth, right? Oh, uh, sure. Uh huh. They were they there in the manger. They had, a, uh, they had a Tardis. But another aspect of our our theological perspective that has really come on the forefront recently, uh, especially, is this idea of natural theology and the natural revelation of God. Uh, to the world. And Scripture gives us a picture of that. It says all of creation testifies to the character of God. Uh, And so where do we play that? Is there enough evidence in nature to give us at least a foundation of God? God's Word says it does. Yeah, actually, I had a conversation. I won't won't name these people. I'll keep their identity private. (laughs) But I was having a conversation with somebody who identified as a pantheist and somebody who identified as a mystic. And those of you listening, if you're not familiar with those words, basically a mystic believes that God or deity exists in everything, all of creation. Its essence is inside of stuff. And then a pantheist, uh, struggling to find a real definition for that one, would believe that... It believes God is in everything. Again, God is in everything, but not in a personal form, right? Right. That would be the difference. Right. And so I was discussing with these people, we were up late. And uh, basically around a a campfire setting, we were actually on a front porch, and we were looking out, and I said, well, where do we begin? I'm I'm interested in knowing where do we actually diverge in our understandings. And and I'm a pastor, and so, you know, it's kind of hard sometimes to talk to people about these kinds of things if you're a pastor because they immediately put the guardrails up. Well, I don't believe what you believe. And I went, wait a sec, I believe we probably believe a lot more. But we are also guilty of the same thing. We automatically put our shields up armed torpedoes. I mean, we do that. We're armed to bear because we're ready to go to war with these people. It's like, well, wait, stop. And like you said, you know, we ought to have a curiosity because, again, there may be some commonalities there, and at some point the path diverged. What was that? What brought that on? Right, and it was a six-hour conversation. It was the most exciting. We were (laughs) up until 4 o'clock in the morning. And I mean, the conversation was I'm just. Too old for that, Derek. No, it was wonderful. If you would have been there, you would have loved it, because we asked questions. Well, what do I know? And in many ways, it was really a conversation that was very similar to Enlightenment era thinking, and that's philosophy, logic built upon things. Well, how do we get to this leap that there is a God? And in talking about that, here's what my friends, the pantheists and the mystic, were all able to agree on: there is a deity. There is, he is personal. The pantheist came around. He's all-powerful. He's moral. And we were able to come to all of those conclusions just by looking at a tree. Natural theology. Hmm. But that also brings us to my favorite target these days, pragmatism. Where in the world did we come up with this idea that 
through pragmatic observation, that's where we should find our theological and doctrinal uh, ideas because it's all about ex- experience and emotions. Yeah. That that one, there's probably going to be more than one episode of this that deals with this because it is the most prevalent theological movement and basis in American Christianity today, I believe. Uh, you may not agree. I bet by the time we're done, you will. But the whole point is the idea of seeking to be the world because that is the mechanism to get people's audience. Uh, and then you wind up with the Andy Stanleys that then say the Old Testament is meaningless to us, that we need to unhitch from it, that even a lot of the miracles of the Bible aren't legit. They were just illustrative points. Really? Come on. What's wrong with you people? And what is the end product of that? The gospel goes out the window. Not only that, but instead of worshiping God, self, you start to worship humanity. yourself because that's who you've made your God. This is the picture in Romans chapter 1, the quintessential passage in Scripture that talks about natural theology. All things have been revealed that can be known about God in nature. The problem is man, thinking himself wise, became a fool, and God delivers him to this as he, instead of worshiping the Creator, chooses to worship creation. Why does that happen, and what warnings does that give us about natural theology? Well, it stops here. The world lives in a fallen condition, and that includes you and me. My observations are marred and warped by a fallen condition. The ultimate blindfold called sin. That's what I I refer to. But that brings us to the way I began this. Then what can we rely on? What is the only reliable source for confirming, establishing, building our theological doctrinal perspective. That's the Word of God, the Bible. That's right. Yeah, so what that makes natural theology then, in my eyes, Scripture alone is the ultimate norm that we have for regulating what faith in life should look like. But once we have been, once you've been saved and, and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and some of the blindness of sin has been removed, not all of it on this side of eternity, we can appreciate nature in a new way, as now we look at it as the theater of God's revelation to his creation. And as kind of a segue, one thing, one term, phrase that I've heard recently is everybody is a theologian. <laughs> Even your pantheist is a theologian. Even your next-door neighbor, bona fide, rebellious atheist is a theologian because ultimately theology is simply your understanding and your crafting of your view of God or lack thereof. And so that brings us around to all of these ideas of theology and where we get theology, regardless of the source, directs our understanding of our culture, of ourselves. And then we have to come to the, this question. What place then does culture hold in this conversation? Well, that gets back to the whole point. Our desire is to bring theology and doctrine from a biblical perspective to bear on our culture. The hard part about that is, you know, we talk about sin giving us blind spots, right? Sin gives us blind spots. Without God's illumination, natural theology is going to fall short. Well, likewise, I've got blind spots in other areas. Mm-hmm. We talked about you know, our biases and presuppositions. I'm a Baptist. I believe I'm as Baptist as they come. Uh, with that said, there are things about me that are some Baptists might <laughs> roll their eyes at. I mean, I appreciate... I've been called a Presbyterian before. 
I'm like, I hadn't asked anybody to bring a baby so I just sprinkle water on him. Sorry. You know, there's some of these things that exist, and even in the Baptist church, you know, we say that we rally against tradition, <laughs> but we're the most traditional group of people I know of. We have exchanged one set of traditions for another. We don't like their traditions because they're wrong. So we're going to have our own traditions because we feel like, oh, there's that pragmatism again. Yep. It feels good, so do it. I got a question for you, Derek. One th- another L- aspect that's going to play into future episodes as well is this idea of our personal versus communal or tribal identity. How does that play in with how we're going to look at our culture in a theological perspective? Well, let's... Uh... Man, I'm so glad you asked that question. I really, I'm trying not to get too excited right now. Let's start with what does our current culture look like? You mentioned everyone's a theologian. We see that all over the Internet. Anyone can get online, and you have these Internet theologians that just kind of go on talking about whatever they want without actually setting the groundwork or the framework or the methodology that they're going to use to approach the world around them. And so what they end up doing is they just espouse their personal preference. That's at the detriment of God's glory. Mm. Uh There are things, even in my tradition, that when I look at them, I realize they exist for practical purposes. And pragmatism is not always bad. We still have to run a church. We still have to pay the light bill. There are some things that are practical, that have to be practical. But is it always necessary? See, I would diverge because I think practical and pragmatism are not equals. And, and they're not. <laughs> it, it's important to make that distinction, though. When we start caving to the desires of people, we realize we do it with tradition a lot of times, too. And so what makes this so difficult is we live in a world where people are able to live in their bubble. I would say right now our country politically is more divided than ever before because everyone's been given their own platform on these things. And what happens, what's part of human nature, when you argue against something, you naturally polarize yourself. Even someone that's reasonably moderate, if they engage in a conversation with somebody who's moderate with a leaning that's somewhat away from them, both of those people would end up leaving that conversation more polarized. Have we not seen, and this is an unplanned uh, uh, rabbit here, but have you kept up at all with what's gone on with Twitter since Elon Musk bought it? It's been a joy. <laughs> you know, what's <laughs> funny about it isn't the division so much as we all now have, have the evidence in front of us that a certain political spectrum was heavily redacted, heavily uh, restricted, suspended, censored, whatever, in a very unequal way. Elon Musk bought them out and has not just let people back in, but has loosened the reins on the idea of free speech. And those that got to have their giant platform of echo chamber for one particular political and moral perspective are now raging because they're being exposed to contrary ideas. But that brings it back around to exactly what you're talking about. When you exist in an echo chamber, you think the whole world thinks like you do. Mm-hmm. And then when you're exposed to the other side, so to speak, whether it's theological, doctrinal, or even political, you get exposed to the other side, and you're challenged by it, and again, it's either going to cause you to look for truth, like our plan is, or it's going to cause you to run the other way screaming and hollering like a messed up Karen. But anyway... And and the bigger issue is, if you run away, 
you're being dishonest with yourself. That's intellectual dishonesty. That's my favorite hashtag on Twitter. I use that all the time. <laughs> Man, it, it's a tremendous problem. If and in the church, it's more prevalent than ever. I bring up political issues because most people in the church are pretty politically aligned. Unfortunately, they're more politically aligned than they are theologically aligned, and that's maybe another episode. But <laughs> here's the bigger problem. If you don't realize, regardless of what side of the political aisle you're sitting on, that half of the country disagrees with you, <laughs> and you just want to spend time with the half that does, you're isolating yourself from your fellow man, and I think that's a detriment. The, the question <laughs> you asked me, Michael, was how do... It was about being an individual or being in a community, right? Or tribalism, even as it tends to be, with that divi- radical division. We live in a world that's more political or more divided, more polarized than I think ever before. And certainly in my young lifetime, it's what I see. I think historically that also holds water. Especially when you consider just taking the American section of that pie, a group of people, 350, 360 million people, that supposedly share some commonalities to be so divided. That's what's crazy. It's one thing when you've got international divisions or historical divisions, the the Greeks versus the Persians, that's that's a whole different concept. I'm talking about within the same, it's almost like ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. It is. And that actually, let me try to rein this in just a little bit. <laughs> this is the part that makes me excited. Uh-oh, don't get excited. Is it's tribalism right. a bad thing? Oh. I don't really think it is. Let me flesh that out for a little bit. Thank you. That, that's dangerous words. There. It, it is dangerous words. The early church identified as the church. They were communal. And indeed, until Constantine's edicts and everything else, the persecution that the church was going through the first two centuries, they were ne- they, it was necessary that they were communal. Acts, early part of the book of Acts. When they, the, it talks about the church in Jerusalem, which we know was already being persecuted uh, by the, the other Jewish people uh, in the city. And yet, what does it describe them as? They had, were coming together daily. They were making sure everybody had their needs met within the church. And they had favor with the people. The very same people that would per- otherwise persecute them saw something different about that tribe. Yep. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting, I, I think I get what you're saying by that. Individuality is actually relatively new, at least in the theological world. I, I would say it's tied to the Reformation we saw in the early Anabaptist movement, most notably Pilgrim Marpeck in 15, 1542 started to develop the idea of our individual conversions. And yes, I'm a Baptist. I believe you are not saved unless your faith is your own. Your parents' faith will not save you. Your tradition, your culture, your family. It goes back to the personal aspect of our relationship with Christ. The the Reformation really was a driving force behind bringing home. Uh, Because, again, well, you you went to, quote, church, and you had had some water sprinkled on your head or whatever else, and a priest deemed you as a Christian, Versus that personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, genuine regeneration, genuine personal faith, not corporate faith. In fact, that goes back to part of my own personal testimony, which I'm not going to get in right now. But it gets back to the difference between affirming that Jesus existed, even affirming his his deity, affirming his identity, and yet transitioning from this corporate overarching died for the sins of the world versus he died for my sins. 
And that gets back to the very core of the gospel of the Reformation itself. Yep. So, but, so here's where these things, two things exist. On one hand, we have community or tribalism. Is it a bad thing? Question mark. I'm going to say no in our individual faith. The Bible, as we read it and as we dive into it, here's what we find. There are things that appear to contradict themselves, but they don't. The Bible has no contradictions in and of itself. That's what makes it an ultimate norm for the way that we approach all things pertaining to faith. And here's what gets really exciting. If these things appear to contradict each other, they actually exist in a creative tension created by God. And this brings me back, we talk about community, and I think very easily from that we want to jump into our community is the church, our ecclesiology, if you will, or the study of what the church is. This is not an issue of the church. It's actually an issue of anthropology. Oof! It's an issue of how are we designed by God, and it's a question that I've been asking myself, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We find that phrase in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, God creates, and he creates man and woman distinctly in his image. Imago Day. What a wonderful testimony, but what does it mean? Especially in our context that wants to create ethnic, racial, cultural divisions and values based on those things when there's the answer right there. If all human beings are made in the image of God, what right do we have to even approach that other direction? But that also winds up being an argument against tribalism. Is it though? Watch this. (laughs) Uh What is the image of God? Historically, and especially in the Reformed tradition in terms of theology, we've said that the image of God that's inside of man is in our intellect, our ability to be self-aware. The problem with that is, what does that say about the image in God of somebody who's neurologically divergent? Do they have less image of God than somebody who's capable or intellectually smart? Absolutely not. (laughs) Right? No, you're right. Yeah. What is, okay, so then if that's not the image of God, what is it? You guys, if you're going to study the Bible, you need to grab hold of this. Context matters. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, man's created in the image of God. The immediate context of that is God giving to Adam dominion over creation. The context beyond that, Genesis 2.18, the first time God ever said something was not good was before sin entered into the world when he said, it is not good that man should be alone. Hmm. God created humanity to exist in a relationship with creation itself. He existed humanity to have a relationship with one another. And ultimately, he creates us to have a relationship with him. Inside of our individuality, our unique imagio Dei, nestled right into that is our necessity of having a relationship with community, being a part of a tribe. So that brings us back around to kind of keep us on track. Uh, We've got several perspectives that we can look at through history, especially Christian history, uh, dealing with Christ and culture and what that looks like because they're all means of trying to address this problem of our identity, whether individual or group, tribal, whatever. You know, we came up with a few of them. You actually uh, listed off several uh, with some of the adherents behind it. Uh, one would be Christ against culture. And what's one way of looking at that? You've got some authors there, Tertullian, Tolstoy, the Mennonites, uh, Rod Dreyer. But 
again, what does that look like? Because again, we want to make this as practical as possible. What does it mean for there to be a this means of dealing with this Christ against culture? Yeah, this is, you know, you see two opposing forces. You, you see basically God's people and you see the rest of the world. You see the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder warring it out, right? Right, and, and that's how we live, you know, as a group, as a collective. And if we're going to live like that, well, man, <laughs> what happens whenever you engage in an intense debate with someone and you're not prepared for it? <laughs> you polarize yourself. And so you're going to see the church pull away from the world. And you're going to see the world pull away from the church, and you're not going to be fulfilling the Great Commission. It, it, it becomes exactly what we see happening in our culture now. Uh, the, defi- the This new marriage bill that was just signed this week, to much fanfare about the Respect of Marriage Act, that didn't ad- introduce any brand new r- actual rights or anything else. What it did is it opened a door to further polarization, because... Now, based on this rule, the courts are going to have to determine uh, in a whole new way when do Christians, for example, have to squash their faith, their beliefs, for the sake of acknowledging, even endorsing lifestyle choices that we, by the Word of God, disagree with. What are we going to do with that? Well, again, that is a product, I believe, of Christ against culture. From the other perspective, they want to boot Christians and Christian thought out of the public square. This, And we see a reemergence of this separation of church and state, which, again, does not exist in the, in the, in the Constitution. But it's this idea of, you know, the church, Christianity, cannot have anything at all to do, and yet the actual official religion of this nation without a single shot being fired or a law being passed is secular humanism. Mm-hmm. That is the the, the, the the religious affiliation now of this nation. But again, it sets up this false dichotomy, I believe, of Jesus against the culture. No, Jesus came to redeem a people from this culture and to redeem it, not to be against it, uh, but then we have the, the, the next category you, you actually provided was Christ of culture. Uh, Albert Rischel uh, and most liberal theologians and mainline Protestants through history. Give us a little shadow of what Christ of culture looks like. In my mind, this is the opposite side of the spectrum. So rather than pulling yourself apart and just kind of polarizing yourself, this is let's just embrace what the rest of the world is doing so that we're palatable to them. There's that P word again and, I'm not going to say. And this, Hashtag. no, this is exactly <laughs> it. This is pragmatism, front and center. And this, this is, is the a, ultimate expression of pragmatism. Since you, since you want to defend some parts of pragmatism, we'll say this is the ultimate fulfillment of the worst of pragmatism. And this is a problem. United Methodist Church. <clears throat> oh man. And, and part of the SBC, and hopefully not our own association, if we stay on guard. But the reality is, the reason it's possible is because we go to sleep on the things that actually do matter. The, the Bible actually gives us our priorities. Part of the purpose for this podcast is to introduce our biases. I said that I'm Baptist. I'm also a BMA Baptist. Correct. And I affirm the doctrinal statement of the Baptist Missionary Association completely and in its entirety. And you're more than welcome to go and look at that. One of the things you'll notice is you can read it in 10 minutes. <laughs> it is a tiny and light theological, uh, light doctrinal statement, and there's a purpose for that. It doesn't exist to delineate all of the things of Scripture and all that we could possibly say about God. It's not a textbook. 
it's actually a means of fellowship. It means if we have these things in common, we can do fellowship and ministry together. In other words, we probably ought to think along those lines. I think one of the terminologies I've heard used for this is the major issues. That's right. Primary issues. I actually have a few more primary issues than our doctrinal statement that has, but again, it does provide a, and the Southern Baptist Convention have their own version of it, though they don't insist on even having to aspire by it anymore, which is the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000. Uh, but still, I think we should have, in the context of us fellowshipping together and working hand in hand, we can't be unequally yoked. Not saying necessarily those that don't agree 100% with our doctrinal statement are unbelievers, but in the context of our functional working together, if Derek and I didn't share significant chunk of doctrinal, theological, foundational ideas, we couldn't have the friendship we have. We just couldn't. We would be at best antagonists hmm. without those fundamental uh, basis. But so we've got this Christ against culture, which is the the dichotomy of, of either or you've got christ of culture just bring it all in it's all okay because god made us this way anyway is the way i put it and then we have the christ above culture that thomas aquinas would uh, would refer to and i think there's an element this is like so many things there is an element of truth jesus is way above he is the only flesh and blood that walked this earth without sin my goodness that's about as above culture as you can get he didn't get entangled in the culture of his day. That's one of the things that I have to check myself on. I get so wrapped up in trying to address problems and issues and politics and, and change that I realize that's not how Jesus operated. He, yeah. he worked on changing individuals, starting with their heart, and changing them, molding them. But again, the good and bad of this position is if we put him out there, it's like talking about some areas of theology that talk about God as only transcendent. He's out there and unapproachable. And yet the Jesus I know is very approachable because he came to me and transplanted my heart and forgave me of my sins by giving me the gift of faith. My goodness, that's about as personal as it gets. My wife hasn't physically gone in and given me a heart transplant, though she's been responsible for changes in my life, but certainly not like Jesus has. But again, I think that's one of the failings of the Aquinas perspective you've got here is Christ is more than above culture. We should have an awe and reverence from him, of him because he is God in the flesh. But at the same time, we then have another false dichotomy of out there versus right here. And the, I think the other implication is you put it out of your reach. And so for your everyday church member, if you say Christ is above culture, well, now I'm just living my two lives. Now I'm living my worldly life until I can get to heaven, and it has no impact or bearing on the way that I live my life day to day. When you put Christ above culture, you put them out of reach. You actually are setting up the groundwork for Piper's Christian hedonism. Sure, yeah. Uh, live like the world right now while you've got the chance. And that opens the door to a whole slew of things. And I never in the world thought I'd ever connect Thomas Aquinas to Joel Osteen. <laughs> Seriously, think about it. The whole Osteen doctrinal theological perspective is my best life now. Get it all right now while I'm in this world. And then go to heaven, where it's, I guess, going to be a disappointment? I mean, seriously, if your best life's now. But the whole point is, again, you, when you start putting these false dichotomies out there, you set yourselves up with wide-open gateways to all sorts of craziness, including blatant rank heresies. Christ and culture and paradox? 
Martin Luther's Two Kingdoms view. This is something that I remember touching on in seminary years ago, and honestly, I, I'm just going to be just another confession. I didn't go back and look this up back up and try to refresh my brain on this. You're going to have to help me remember what this paradox was. I would, uh, I would just summarize it probably more simply than what you're asking for and <laughs> say Luther saw the problem that we're talking about. Okay, you set up two dichotomies and you're setting yourself up for failure. So let's just put these two different issues, the world and also Jesus, let's just put these in paradox and say, ah, it's pretty tough to talk about. The problem is, as you approach this view, is that the world is simply not as neat as Martin Luther attempts to make it. Christians eventually have to choose between the church and culture. That's just a reality. Every day presses upon every individual the necessity to make a choice. Then what's the answer? Well, obviously, well, then we've got to quit assuming everything is this false dichotomy. That's just another form of division. Sure. And so how do we reconcile all this? When we look at it, is the idea of Christ that's transforming culture. It's Christ that is working in our culture through who? His elect. Yeah, that's exactly it. That, that he's already, and it's bottom up. It's not top-down. It's bottom-up. He's working in individuals. He's drawing individuals to one another. And in those communities, like you mentioned in Acts, as we discussed individuality versus our communal identity, he's drawing the world to him. And that isn't to say that the mission of the church is, is purely centrifugal or that it's working its way in. It's doing both. It's working its way out as it's doing this as Christ transforms the world around it. And that brings us back to this ultimate idea of how we deal with differences of opinion, doctrinal differences, theological differences, uh, and especially in context of our own personal, there's that word again, our own personal growth in Christ. Uh, some things that the Lord has given us uh, through example, uh, through uh, our own experiences, not to be tied up in pragmatism, but the Lord does give us opportunities. And I think one of the biggest ones, and I think we've already set the, the tone for this, is don't do theology. Everybody's a theologian. Don't do it in a vacuum. Don't do it in an echo chamber where the only voice is what you want to hear and what you desire. You know, I know when I first started getting into theology as far as trying to pursue things, I, it's a real dangerous and common ground to seek out authors and writers and preachers and teachers that already hold the value you you think you hold and then build a case around it. That's almost like picking and choosing scripture to, to preach a message on something that may or may not even be accurate. Don't do theology in a vacuum. Theology really is a group project, for lack of better terms. Our, our breakfast, uh, our brotherhood breakfast just a, a Saturday ago, was probably the best example I have seen of that in a long time. It's ex exactly what I was hoping it would turn into. There's 12 guys sitting around this big round table, and I tossed out a current event in scope of historical Christianity and the Bible. And there were viewpoints coming out. Some folks, you could tell, getting a little disturbed. But as we discussed it, as we discussed it, the conversation became warmer and warmer because everybody was in a mode of listening and realizing I can learn something from this conversation. You know, I, I've oftentimes tried to visualize, I'm going to use TARDIS again because I really wish I had one. I wish Dr. Who would come and get it, pick us up right now. 
Uh, well, not necessarily right now, but uh, I'm a little crippled up right now. But I, I would love to transport back in time to the early uh, mid mid first century, mid late first century, and go visit some of those early house churches because that's what it was, and look at them on a day that a new letter arrived from Paul. Hmm. or even a copy of a letter. So it they didn't have to feel quite so bad that there were sinners in their own midst that were being directly by name called out. But still, getting a new, fresh word of word from these, these biblical authors and to sit there and read it aloud and just see the, the awestruck in the eyes and probably tears oftentimes, not only of joy of hearing this, but also the opportunity they had before them to sit there and digest it together. And these are folks that didn't have a theological foundation like we do with textbooks and writers and everything else. But to sit around and chew on issues of the day in light of the Word of God, excuse me, the Word of God, together, knowing that we don't all come necessarily from the identical starting point of presuppositions, and to learn, I tell you what, I have learned more from conversations like you and I have, or I and other preachers and friends uh, and in groups that I'm in, I have learned more because of those slightly differing perspectives and viewpoints than I ever have hearing the same thing over and over and over on repeat. We need that. Yeah, I, I have a high view of education. I love Absolutely. seminary. And my favorite class, you know, has been theological classes. Woo! Preach! You know what the problem is? That is still, it's a, it's kind of a manufactured version of what the church is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. These conversations aren't high academia. They, they are, what does the Bible teach us about God? When I was in seminary, when I took systematic theology, Dr. South used Erickson's systematic theology. I wanted to burn that book every time I opened it. You know why? Because at that point in my theological and spiritual growth, I felt like I needed somebody to give me a little spoon feeding because I was pulled in a lot of different directions. And if anybody has ever studied Erickson's systematic theology and you're looking for clear answers, throw the book away. Because Erickson does, looking back in hindsight, I'm thankful for, he presents these major theological perspectives and builds them up, then tears them down and goes, there you go. And you're sitting there going, ah, but well, now what? Well, I looking back, I go, now what is, now let's engage with this and engage with the Word of God and be a Berean and figure it out. That's right. And 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 that's the thing. He challenges with this. You know, you can get some of these other theological books. I'm trying to look at my bookshelf right now because I wasn't prepared for this to bring this up. Uh, but it's probably one of the most used theological textbooks in college. Grudem. Grudem. Or Michael Grudem. Bird has one. Uh, Grudem's the one I was thinking. Yeah. Grudem is a spoon feeder. Yep. And it's well done. And while I disagree with him on several issues, his textbook is well done if you're looking for some spoon feeding. The problem is that's exactly what his systematic theology is. I've got Beek's uh, systematic theology, first three volumes over there. My gosh, it's overwhelming. And I've got a lot ahead of me to do reading. But again, it comes back to, I'm sure there's going to be points that I don't agree with even that great thinker. Uh, but it gets back to challenging yourself uh, this brings us to a, a phrase that I remember the first time I heard it, I didn't understand it. It was actually called a little sideways with. Uh, but the Reformers had a phrase, Semper Reformata. Oh, that's a good one. What does that mean? It means always reforming. Reforming is not bad. It's, you know, we Baptists, especially getting back to our traditions and our and our, our foundations, we hate that term. In fact, a lot of us Baptists have the landmark perspective that, that we just swallow it because it came from another church, because it came from another church, came from another church, all the way back through the trail of blood, right? Well, not Baptist, because, you know, you know, Mark, the Lutherans have Martin Luther. 
And Correct. The Methodists Correct. have John have Wesley. Their, their the Baptists have John the Baptist. So. But, uh, exactly. Everybody knows <laughs> being the First Baptist, right? But, <laughs> but, I mean, after all, First Baptist Church case Springs is just the offspring of First Baptist Church Jerusalem in the first century, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what I'm getting at, though, is the idea of re- a Reformation is not a wordy nerd. Even if you full-blown believe in every little detail of the uh, landmark movement, still, if you're not willing to be molded and formed by the Word of God and by the work of the Spirit in our lives, in our minds, in our thinking, if we're not willing to confront doctrine and theology honestly seeking the truth as we started this whole program off with, if we're not willing to do that, we're not teachable. And Lord, if there's any other goal, lofty goal I have in my life is to be teachable. I want to be molded by what God's Word has said, what God has told us, what He has revealed in His Word, also by natural theology, yes, uh, because we can't, again, throw that out. That's extraordinarily important. But always reforming. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my secular college, undergraduate degree was from University of Central Arkansas, and at the time, their university catchphrase was Center of Lifelong Learning. For a secular term, that's actually a campus. That's actually pretty good. I have, I came to a point a long time ago deciding every day I'm committed to try to learn something, yeah. even if it's little. I want to learn something every day. And as a theology nerd, as a pastor, as a believer, my desire is just like the term sanctification, meaning we're growing closer to be like like Christ every single day. Or as my really 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 bad analogy is. Our spiritual walk ought to be like golf. Now Derek's laughing at me because he's going, Lord have mercy, what's he thinking? But here's the deal. What is the ultimate goal of golf? To get the ball in the hole, right? And the idea is every time you step up to that ball and swing at that ball, you hope it's closer to the hole. I'm not saying professional under 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 par. I'm talking about you just want to get closer to the hole. Every day I get up and live, I pray that I am closer to Christ at the end of that day, through my reading, through my study, through my prayer, and, that's and through my seeking. that's interesting, because you're able to make error. You can overshoot the ball and move further away from the hole. And in the theological realm, as Dr. South used to say, is this giant pendulum that swings back and forth, back and forth, from one extreme to another, a whole lot like politics. And the idea is, but we've got to be subject to correction from the Word of God, from truth. And that's exactly where we're at uh, in this, this whole thing. What is our target? What is, as believers, you know, we can go to some of the great confessions of faith and, and, and uh, you know, what is the chief aim of man? Mm. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's great. But what does that look like? That looks like what our desire is with this podcast. And that is to help ourselves grow first as we hope that our listeners, through engaging, would themselves grow a little bit towards Christ and hopefully not duff the ball and go further from the hole than what you started. Uh, but again, always be ready. I'm a terrible golfer. And if I had somebody far superior in skills, I'm going to default to their recommendations and suggestions in improving my golf game. There are times that Derek and I talk that he says something that's extraordinarily profound to me and causes me to reform or to look at something a little different. We try to do that on a regular basis, just like the idea of iron sharpening iron. That's the whole point of being together in these communities, uh, in these groups that are not an echo chamber, so that we can hone each other to a razor-sharp edge like a two-edged sword. 
And the encouragement to that is, if you're a young person, ask the questions because most likely, if you, even if you're learning from somebody, if they're being, I'll say it again, intellectually honest, there are things that they have adopted views on that they have not really spent the time considering. The, the truth is, even in a study of Scripture, in a study of theology, or even in, there are so many facets that we could dive into. Hmm. I have not fleshed out every detail of every facet I could possibly explore. I've done my best. But do you know how I know when to go further? When someone asks me a question, <laughs> and I say, well, hold Oops. on a second. Oops. Let me make sure I can flesh this uh. out. Hey Siri, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, but that's the reality. But let's get back into it again. This podcast and just the idea of doing theology, so to speak, is as the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, to say, "Vanity of vanities." If we aren't doing it with an eye towards the Word of God and the study and the prayer and all that we invest in it isn't then subjected to him changing us through his word. I have said time after time after time in relation to preaching, sitting in a lecture in seminary, whatever the case, if I'm not willing to allow the word of God and the truth when it comes to light to change my thinking, to change my view, to cause me to reframe the argument, whatever the case is needed, if I'm not willing to allow that to happen, then I might as well quit doing theology. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a means to an end. But if the, the whole thing is if all the doing theology, all the studying, all the podcasting, all the YouTubing, all the different formats that we can dig, dive, read, and do, if all of that doesn't lead us not only to grow spiritually, but... If that doesn't have then a producing factor of causing us to be more passionate about evangelism, sharing the gospel that is transforming of lives, if it doesn't cause us to pursue ever more intentionally the disciple-making efforts, then again, just like not allowing it to... If it doesn't cause us to be molded and then to desire to be disciple makers, evangelizers, if it doesn't cause us to be passionate about seeing people's lives to become more like Christ, it's just as vain as just doing theology for the sake of doing theology. Hey, one of the things uh, in this conversation about how do you engage with culture and still be doing theology, you know, I don't want to be an armchair theologian. I'm As much fun as I think I would have sitting around and thinking about things. (laughs) You know what I'd rather be doing? I'd rather have somebody in my back pocket saying, you haven't really thought about that as much as you think that you have. And that that usually looks like that church member or that friend that you're talking to and one of these issues or some topic comes up and they ask a question. Oh, yeah. The danger of a question. And yet... That right there, again, if we restrict ourselves to our little echo chambers, our vacuum, our armchairs, we're just swatting swatting and gnats. And there's an issue in particular. There's one particular issue that pushes people away from this. The Bible talks about three letters. S-I-N. Yeah, you know exactly where I'm going. It doesn't spell Nebraska. 
<laughs> but it might might talk about Georgia's uh, elect, electorate so far. Anyways, um, the Bible talks about sin, and when you start talking about sin, that's what pushes people away because no longer am I talking about preferences. No longer am I talking about secular humanism. Don't no, judge me. Now I'm talking about a moral absolute. And you know what? You, I would rather be my own arbiter of truth. The bigger problem is <laughs> sin, and this is the, when when I talk with people who are, you know, particularly in this world or even opposed to, people like to say, I'm Christian, but I'm not into the whole organized religion thing. You know, when I talk with these folks, their view of the church's idea of sin is that we think that people who aren't in the church are sinners and that the church is all okay. <laughs> and we're a bunch of hypocrites. You know what the bigger concern is? They're right. We have traditions in the church that we hold on to and make idols out of. Yeah. We have preferences that we will lean towards that actually not only push other people away from God, they push us away from God. Right. Sin is prevalent in all of this world as a consequence of the fall. That gets back to that really touchy a uh, matter of depravity, or as those crazy wild reform folks like to say, total depravity. That doesn't mean everything's as bad as it could possibly be, or everybody's as evil as they possibly could be. It just simply means that everything is touched by, mm-hmm. everything's contaminated by. And you know, one of the most, one of my favorite illustrations of that comes from Evangelism Explosions, old material that talks about. I'm going to invite Derek over for our next podcast, and I'm going to cook breakfast because then I'll be healed up and can stand up longer. Uh, And I'm going to cook up because I know Derek's really hungry, and so I'm going to cook a whole dozen eggs. And I'm cracking eggs into this this bowl to make scrambled eggs, and I go through 11 eggs. Derek likes to eat eggs. Mm -hmm. I go through 11 eggs, and I get to the 12th egg, and it's rotten. But it's okay because it's only one-twelfth bad, right? But isn't that exactly what that's getting at is we don't like to think that everything, including us, even as a believer, is touched by, influenced by this thing called sin. Mm-hmm. It's a contamination factor. And I hate to say it's in my DNA because God didn't make me a sinner. That's that's a whole other another issue to discuss. But it gets back to what are we going to do with that idea of sin? Because we're, as we're running low on time here, we really need to wrap this up with one really important thing. And I've already hinted around about it. But it comes back to this. Sin really is the universal problem. It is the problem. It's why we don't do theology like we should. It's why we don't pray like we should. It's why we don't live like we should. It's why, it's why, we, why, need we, permission. why we need permission to be wrong. Absolutely. It's it, It's not only, it's the problem. You're right. S-I-N is the problem. And so what do we do with it? Well, we don't do anything with it because we can't. That's all part of the problem. But our God is more than capable. In fact, in the in, in his infinite will, he already had a plan to deal with sin. All the theology we point at goes right to that. This morning, as I was getting ready to drive up here to record this episode, my wife was sitting on the couch with our kids. They had just gotten up, and she was watching TV, and I was talking to her, and she seemed a little bit off, and I said, are you okay? And she, she did what my wife does. My wife's very emotional. She said, I don't want to tell you because you'll make fun of me. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, I was doing my Bible study this morning and I just realized how bad sin is. I would never in the world make fun of somebody for saying that. 
And I because didn't... that's I've been reading the, a lot of Puritan stuff lately, uh, especially Valley Vision and all the and that book of prayers. And in fact, I gave a copy to the, the, uh, one of the ladies at the coffee shop uh, a couple weeks ago, and she told me when I went through the drive through on the way here this morning that she had been reading on it, and she had tears in her eyes that she's waiting on me in the window. Thank you so much for that book because it really put these things in perspective. And that right there, especially when you read the Puritans, as much as I can disagree with them on a lot of things, they were antagonists of Baptists, for goodness sake. Mm. But their view of sin and our flesh was far more serious than we even as Baptists tend to take it. They saw that, that the, the sinfulness of sin, uh, to use yet another one of those great titles, uh, historical titles, the sinfulness of sin. And it ought to bring us to emotion. It ought to, even as a born-again believer, I ought to, and I'm pounding on the table, it's probably going to be picked up in the recording, um, but I ought to grieve sin. Paul, in the book of Romans, wrote about that, was it chapter 7? Talked about the things that he, the sin that he just can't seem to shake, yeah. and he, he doesn't want to, and yet at the same time, uh, as Daryl Harrison posted on Twitter, uh, this quote from uh, a book, uh, that dealt with the idea of all sin is voluntary. Mm. All sin is voluntary. It doesn't mean I've necessarily got up this morning to say, I'm going to go out there and sin. But to do sin is voluntary. And how do we know that? Because Scripture specifically says, with temptation, that is temptation to sin, God always provides a way of escape. Yeah, There is a mean to not sin if we genuinely set our hearts and minds to not pursue that sin. But it's an ongoing decision. I'm going to tell you what. I, I, my, this world gives me so many opportunities to sin that I, I, by the time I've got my eyes open and walked into the bathroom first thing in the morning, I've been confronted by probably 100 methods and means to sin if I want to. Let me, uh, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. Romans chapter 12, you know, sticking so, in Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We make ourselves, our spiritual worship is that we are the sacrifice. What's the problem with a living sacrifice? It keeps crawling off the altar. Mm, mm. The gospel does give us the ability to overcome sin and to live a world where we can live to glorify God, but it is not by our own power. It's by Christ's power. So let me set you up. This will probably be the last thing I say, Michael. Let me ask you a question. Gospel means good news. Why? If, is sin such a part of the good news if it makes people cry, if it makes the driver in the coffee shop window be moved to tears? Why is that good news? Because the good, good news aspect of it is that God gave us the means of escape, the means of redemption, the means of dealing with it. In fact, Jesus put sin to death on the cross. Too bad we go back like dogs to vomit to it. Mm. But he is the answer. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who was there in the beginning with God because he was God, identified in John 1 as the Word, uh, who has been eternally existent with the Father, co-equal with the Father. In fact, he didn't consider it robbery to be uh, thought of as co-equal with the Father who willingly stepped down, took on flesh by the Virgin Mary. And yes, I'm not lifting Mary up as some kind of queen of heaven, mother of God, uh, adoring her because she was a sinner too. Ooh, I'm going to have our Catholics really excited about that. And yet God chose the mechanism of coming into her by the Holy Spirit to, to conceive without sin 
unlike me, unlike you, unlike all of our uh, readers or listeners, to come into this world, he experienced all the temptations of his life, but without sin, who willingly, though living without sin, took my sins. There's my testimony right there, is when I, in my mind, finally transitioned from sins to my sins. When he was sweating his great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer before the Lord, saying, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. He had my sins weighing on his shoulders in his heart. My sins, Michael Battenfield, chiefest of sinners. I I haven't stood by and watched somebody get executed and then sought after the blood of others like Paul. I'm going to tell you what, I've given him a run for the money on sinner in my life. And yet Christ Jesus willingly took my sins, paid the price as the penal substitute for me. He took my literal place on that cross that I deserved even before I was born. He took my place on that cross, paid the debt for my sins, and not just my sins yesterday and today, but my sins that I commit tomorrow. Not that I would take advantage of that and continue to sin that grace might abound, God forbid. But instead, I simply come before his throne in the faith that, oh, by the way, he gave me as a gift so that I couldn't brag about it. And he gave me eternal life. He redeemed my soul. He transformed my life with the great substitution of Christ's righteousness for my unrighteousness. And praise be to God, it's only by his grace am I saved. Yeah. That's great. The gospel is good news. Not because it tells us about sin, but because it gives us the ability to understand the depths of depravity that exist in it. And parallel to that, the more that we understand the depths of sin, the more we'll understand the heights of grace. And the more we want to learn about him and to become like him. And there you have where our theology ought to be pointing us. Every time. Well, we thank you for tuning in. I hope you didn't fall asleep between us, between the beginning and now. But either way, I hope that you have enjoyed this. Uh, we have a whole lineup of ideas that we're going to be dealing with over the course of the coming months. I hope that you will uh, eventually decide it's worthwhile to subscribe. Uh, we will have a lot of fun. It's not always going to be as dry as some of this conversation was. But the whole point is we seek to glorify God, to edify one another, and to strengthen one another in the power of Jesus Christ and his word, that we might be right-minded and be transformed, always reforming indeed, to become more like the image of Christ in our lives. Thank you again so much for tuning in, and we hope this has been as much of a blessing to you as it has to us. Thank you, and goodbye from the Lonely Pastors.